This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our Beginning Again series, hosted by writer Beverly Willette, who brings us powerful stories about folks who encountered hardship and have to somehow start over in their lives. And here's Beverly's latest. One morning in 1986, New Yorkers opened their newspapers, including me in my apartment in Brooklyn. We saw the photo of a 24-year-old woman named Marla Hansen staring back at us with stitches all over her face. This beautiful woman, a Missouri native who'd gone to college in Texas and then moved to New York City to begin a modeling career, had been brutally slashed with razors the night before outside a Manhattan restaurant. Marla didn't know the two men who had cut up her face, but she did know the man behind it. I had been living in an apartment that was owned by a makeup artist, and he had maintained his own set of keys and would come in the apartment at will anytime he felt like it. You'd be walking out of the shower naked, and there he would be. You would, you know, come out of your bedroom in the morning, and there he would be. And it was a little unnerving for myself and my three other roommates. So we had a um, dorm meeting, and I was the one elected to um, speak to him about it. And when I, when I confronted him about not coming to our apartment and not, you know, coming in, he reacted very violently. It was scary. So I decided I would move out. And he reacted to that very violently. Um, He owed me my rental deposit back, so I agreed to meet him in person in um, a public place. I was scared of him by that point. I already had a bad feeling, so I thought, okay, if I meet him in a public place, a restaurant that was located at the bottom floor of my building, I'll be okay. So I did that, and I wasn't okay. I walked out of the... um, the restaurant, when it became clear he wasn't going to return my rental deposit, he just, I don't know why he even met me. It was kind of an odd meeting. I walked out, and all I had to do was walk out of the building and then turn, a, you know, turn and go into the entrance of the apartment building. It was the same building, just a different door. So I walked out, and as I was turning to go into the building, there were two men standing in the shadows. And um, I wasn't going to make it in the building. They were blocking my way. So I turned to walk the other way. And I thought, oh, walk around the corner to the deli that was there. And I was walk- as I walked away, I noticed them step out of the shadows and start to follow me. And the landlord also came out of the restaurant and began to walk with me. And I knew at that moment that I was in some trouble. Trouble would turn out to be an understatement. Even though Marla made the perfectly natural assumption, we all do that meeting in a public place will keep us safe. I knew there was a police station nearby, so I was trying to make my way there, but I didn't get there. There was a parking lot behind the building, and as I reached the parking lot, they caught up with me and dragged me into the the parking lot. And while I was trying to defend myself from like a rape attack, I didn't realize they were doing something to my face. They were kind of waving their hands. One held me down. The landlord went off to be a lookout. And the other one was moving his hands sort of wildly in front of my face. 
I didn't realize until I looked down at my white T-shirt, which had turned red from all the blood, what had happened. Somebody had seen what was happening, uh, you know, a neighbor that was walking down the street, and he started shouting and running toward them. At that point, they ran away, and I was able to pull myself away from the situation and run. We hear about the power of love all the time, but fear is an equally powerful force because it's so tied to our instinct for survival. I was curious about how this fight for survival figured into Marla's experience. So I did some research and found that scientists liken the reaction we have to fear to a reflex, and that less than a tenth of a second occurs between what precipitates our fear and the reaction itself. Here's what was running through Marla's mind during the split second after the attack, right before she was able to run away. You do what you need to do to survive. It was almost like I went on autopilot, and I knew I was in a survival moment, and I got very calm. Interestingly, um, there would be waves of panic, though. It was kind of like a wave would come over, and I'd panic, and then I would stop and breathe and think, okay. You know, I was, I screamed, clearly, people heard me. I don't even remember doing it, though. It's almost like it sort of just happened, but nobody helped. People, there were all sorts of cars going into the, um, I want to say the Lincoln Tunnel. It's right by the Lincoln Tunnel. And it was a busy night, lots and lots of cars. You know, they rolled their windows up. Nobody helped me. And the moment when I saw people looking at me and not helping, I thought, okay, I have to help myself. Nobody would help. I had to help myself, she said. So that's what Marla did. She made her way back to the restaurant where she told people to call the police and hospital and ask for wet towels. She said her face was bleeding so badly she could put her fingers inside it. That's when she got very lucid, she said. And then the cops arrived to take her to the hospital. As I was getting in the car, there was a lot of stuff in the back of the car, like boxes and things like that. So there was barely any room for me, but I squeezed myself in. And as I was shutting the door, the landlord jumped in the car, almost on my lap, and shut the door and then announced that he was my boyfriend and started barking orders. So that was absolutely terrifying because I didn't know what to say. So I, oh, he's tried to kill me already. And um, I just shut up. I went really silent. And when we come back, more on this story from Beverly Willette, the story of Marla Hansen. This is our Beginning Again series. And what a story it is. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we're back with Beverly Willett's Beginning Again series. And if you have a Beginning Again story, give us a call at 844-627-8255 and record your story there. Or leave us your information, and we can help you record it. Once again, that's 844-627-8255. And now let's return to Beverly's latest feature on Marla Hansen, the New York model whose perverted landlord hired men to brutally slash her face with a razor blade in 1986. And by the way, if you were living in New York or near New York at the time, and I was, those pictures in the New York Post were horrifying. When we left off, Marla escaped her attackers and got into a police car, and then her landlord jumped into their car and pretended to be her boyfriend. Let's hear what happens next. police had um, caught the attackers and then the landlord of course was in the car with me they said we're going to make a stop on the way to the hospital you're okay and you know just tell us if you recognize anyone so they stopped and there were the two guys that cut me were on the ground in handcuffs so I was able to identify them at that point and and then get to the hospital as soon as I got to the hospital, I told them that the guy in the car was not my boyfriend. In fact, he was the guy that did this to me. I didn't even know if they would believe me because I was having trouble believing it myself. But I woke up the next morning from surgery and there was a little um, urinal bottle <laughs> with flowers in it and a note from the police saying that they believed me and that they had, in fact, arrested the makeup artist that orchestrated the attack and that they all three guys were behind bars. And they said, rest assured, justice will be served. But justice would not be served for several years, if it ever was. Although that's generally what we tend to believe in America, we're brought up to believe that justice will also be swift. But that didn't happen for Marla either. Of course we need to hold on to hope, but justice doesn't always work the way we think it will. Marla figured that out fairly quickly. But first, she underwent surgery on her face, her calling card for her modeling career, and the way she earned her living. I woke up the next morning and, you know, you, it's just your mind can't get itself around that sort of thing. And I kept thinking, I've dreamt this. And I woke up thinking I would be back in my apartment and it was just this bad dream. But woke up and there I was in the hospital um, with a nurse jabbing a needle in my behind. <laughs> and I said, okay, this is real. I'm really here. And um, then the surgeon came in a few minutes later. and. He was adorable. He uh, was standing next to me. He seemed very nervous, but he had this uh, mirror at his, you know, at his side, holding onto it. And one side was a magnifying glass, and the other was a regular one. And I was fixated on the mirror because I wanted to look at myself. And in fact, the night before, before I had surgery, um, when I was in the ER, I wanted to see myself. So I told the nurse I had to go to the loo and jumped up and ran down the hall with my IV attached 
and she chased after me and lunged into the bathroom and said, no, you, you, I know what you're doing. You're not going to the bathroom. You're trying to look at your face, and I'm not going to let you do that. So I never saw myself. Uh -huh. I thought, based on everyone's reactions, that it must be pretty bad. But I was still alive, and then that's all you think about in a moment like that. I'm alive, and you know I survived this because during the attack, I didn't think I would. In fact, I was sure I was going to die, and I was perfectly fine with it. This sort of peace comes over you, and I found myself with a new perspective about, I don't know, 100 feet above my body looking down. And it was just this moment of absolute clarity I've never had before and never had since. But I had disembodied, I guess, and was looking down at the situation, kind of directing myself. But yet there I was up there having my big life review. You know, it's like the cliche you always hear about, where all your life passes before your mind's eye, and that's exactly what it was. Turns out these out-of-body occurrences are absolutely real. Both trauma and near-death experiences can bring them on. I was surprised to learn that nearly one in 10 people will have at least one such episode during their lifetime, and sometimes more. During Marla's experience, she debated with herself whether she was prepared to die, or instead wanted to go on living. Have I really learned everything I can learn as Marla? And the answer was no, I think I can learn a little more. So I said out loud to myself, I want to learn more as Marla. I want to stay here as Marla. And I felt like, I really felt like that um, it was a conscious decision to stay. And if I had chosen, I could have left. It was really wild. And it, it was interesting because it really made me, in the aftermath, question everything I questioned about life and myself. Because if my consciousness was up there, who was down there? You know, I was both places. It was very weird and trippy. and. Um, I think therapists have a name for that, which is disassociation, but to me it felt like something more spiritual than that. When she first woke up from surgery, though, Marla was off balance and not entirely sure whether she was dead or alive. When I first awoke from surgery, I opened my eyes and there was this face over me <laughs> with blonde hair and there was a light right above his head so it was like shining all around him and then this big booming voice said hello Marla and I thought to myself for a second I did not survive and then he said I'm Chuck Scarborough from Channel 4 News <laughs> it was hilarious so that kind of broke the ice and you know it was funny thank God for that moment of levity because sometimes that's exactly what we need to keep going. Marla would still have to look at herself in the mirror, however, and see for herself what so many of us saw when we opened our newspapers back in 1986. All 150 stitches that crisscrossed her face. And getting a look was practically all she could think about when the surgeon checked on her. He was talking to me about what he had done, and all I could think, all I could fixate on was that mirror hanging at his side. So finally, he noticed, and he's like, oh, you want to see yourself? And I said, yes. So he gave me the mirror, but the, the uh, magnifying glass side, I picked it up and I looked at it, and all I saw was this big explosion of stitches. And when I did that, I noticed that every stitch was perfectly formed, exactly the same distance apart, like a beautiful piece of artwork. 
So I was like looking at that, and I said, wow, you know, you did a really beautiful job. That's so nice. Thank you so much. And I think he almost started to cry, the surgeon. <laughs> He's like, are you in shock? I've never had anybody thank me after I, like, stitched their face up like that. And I was like, well, now I was noticing that all the stitches, how perfect they are. You know, you did, like, almost like an artwork. And he said, in fact, he was an artist. He was a sculptor and a painter, as well as a plastic surgeon. So... It was the whole experience from start to finish was just really wild. Um, but I think at that point I was just so appreciative that I was alive. And I had such a great surgeon that you know, did such a beautiful job on my face. In an unlucky situation, I was pretty lucky in the aftermath. So that's what I focused on. If I had to pick one moment from my talk with Marla, when I understood what a resilient and incredible woman she is, I think it would be this moment of gratitude. In the midst of something so horrible, most of us probably can't grasp it. If you don't remember this tragedy, or weren't alive then, Google that photograph from her hospital bed, and you'll see what I mean. Whatever Marla's face looked like at that moment, I think there's no doubt about the condition of her heart. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story by Beverly Willett, beginning again is the series, and the subject, Marla Hansen. And my goodness, it's just, it's remarkable what Americans do, what people do at their most difficult times. What a heart this lady has, and there's a heck of a lot more of her story to follow. How does she overcome this? What happens next? When we come back, more on Marla Hansen's story here on Our American Stories. And as always, you can go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Our American Stories, and we're listening to the latest story in Beverly Willett's Beginning Again series. Stories of folks figuring out how to move forward after a tremendous shock in their lives. And we've been hearing Marla Hansen's stories, and my oh my, what a shock in her life. By now, Marla's attackers have been caught. She's recovering in the hospital, but a whole new series of challenges await her. Marla's attack quickly became national news, and the press hounded her. Before she'd even had time to physically recover, Marla was thrown into the middle of the criminal justice system and the media circus. It was a big press kind of um, 
extravagance. <laughs> I guess it was a slow news day or something. But the press got hold of the story, and there wasn't a TV in my room in the hospital, thank God, because I had no idea what was brewing until the phone started ringing. A year before the trial started, in between that time, there were the investigations, which are, if you've never been through anything like that, pretty eye-opening and traumatic, because you, you have this understanding that the justice system is there for you, but no, it's not because you don't matter. All you are is a piece of information. The justice system is there for the accused. Now, I thought the prosecutor was my attorney, but no, that's not it either. You don't have an attorney. You don't have the right to have an attorney because they don't feel like you need one, even though everything about your life is put into question. Um, it really tears at your sanity. So if I thought my life was gonna be easy when I decided to stay, I was in for a really rude awakening. And um, I was kind of floating on this cloud of appreciation for a while, but that came crashing down when they called me in front of the grand jury and took me straight from the hospital. I had no clothes. Um, I didn't have any underwear. Somebody gave me some clothes that didn't even fit right, um, and I didn't have underwear on. I had none, and I didn't have any way to get any, and they hadn't cleaned my face. I hadn't really even looked at myself. So I wasn't supposed to be talking and moving my face, and yet they made me come and testify. The doctor was beside himself, but, you know, what can you do? As a former attorney, I can tell you, there's not much you can do once you're caught up in the justice system. Things have improved since Marla's experience, but at the time, reform was still in its infancy. Victims' rights advocate Steve Twist agrees with Marla's observation. Too often, victims were treated more like evidence than suffering human beings. Our Constitution's Sixth Amendment guarantees criminal defendants the right to a speedy trial. But there's no similar guarantee of fair treatment for victims. Many people are blindsided when they've done absolutely nothing wrong. As is often said, the process is the punishment. And that's what happened to Marla, too. The defense attorneys called her character into question, and she feel like she was the one being put on trial instead of her attackers. Cast in the role of racist vixen. I had to go testify, and I hadn't had time to gather my thoughts. I hadn't had time to really think through everything, and they're saying, oh, don't worry, just tell us what happened. But what they don't say is, you're stuck to every single word you say and exactly the way you say it. And if you vary from that, you remember something else or you know, something else comes to mind, then that calls your credibility into question. So nobody says that to you. And I didn't have anyone protecting my rights or myself. I just sort of went in there thinking, oh, well, I'm telling the truth, so this is what it's going to be. But in comes Reverend Sharpton and Alton Maddox and the whole crew because two of the guys that cut me were black. The landlord was white. And I didn't, I was completely blindsided by that because here they came and said that I was just some white, and this is their words, bitch from Texas, who saw the first two black guys on the street and pointed my finger at them. That side swiped me. It came from nowhere. I wasn't expecting it. I didn't know what to say to that. So all of a sudden I was a liar. I was a prostitute who was out there, you know, doing God knows what on a you know, midnight on a street corner. Because they had shoved me to the ground, so my face was basically belt level to the guys when they were cutting me. 
And so what did that look like? You know, so they started saying things like that, and then I put me on the defensive, so all then I could do is defend myself. But then you're not allowed to do that either because you're not, there was a gag order. I wasn't allowed to talk to the press. We hear a lot about victim blaming now, but not so much back then. What happened to Marla was classic. You take a victim and bully and humiliate them at a time when they're at their weakest and most vulnerable and hope a jury will believe that they're partially or fully responsible for what happened to them. And if you object, defense attorneys are of course going to claim that they're just trying to protect their own client's interests. There's a war going on between the prosecution and the defense and victims are essentially caught in the middle. And even though it's natural for a victim to assume they're on the side of the prosecution and that the government is looking out for them, in reality, if you're a prosecutor, you don't want to lose your case. So the police often grill the victim, too, to make sure that this piece of evidence won't crack under pressure. They put you in this room with a hard plastic chair, and there's a chair across from you, and they get up and leave the room, and you sit there for 20 minutes by yourself looking around, and it's not a pretty room either. They come back with a file, and they look at the file, then they look up at you, then they look at the file, they look up at you, they look at the file, they look at you, they look at you, they look at you, then they put the file down, they look at you some more, and they say, and then you're nervous by that time because you're thinking, what are they looking at? Then they start to ask you questions. Is there anything you want to tell us? And you're like, um, no. Are you sure about that? So then you really start getting nervous because then you're seeing yourself through their eyes and you're thinking, oh, my gosh. You know, and you start to feel like you've done something. And um, they were questioning me about everything. Every man in my life, what was I doing out that night, and what skeletons did I have in the closet. And um, it was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. And I kept thinking, what have I done? You know, I'm in trouble here. And um, finally, when they finished, they said, oh, well, we have to do that to make sure that you don't have any skeletons in your closet. What does it have to do with anything? It has nothing to do with that night. But all of a sudden, I'm on the defensive again, you know, not only in front of the press and in front of, you know, Reverend Sharpton and Automatics, but now the police are questioning my credibility. And they kept saying, what really happened that night? And he said, I've told you. No, Marla, really. I think you're leaving something out. And you're like, no, not that I can think of. Um, so immediately I realized, okay, this isn't going to be, you know, this isn't me, you know, showing up and telling the truth and thinking everything's going to be okay because right away I realized it's not. This is something much bigger than me. Eventually there would be two trials, one of Marla's landlord and the other trial of the men who had physically attacked her. Marla was required to testify in both. All three men were convicted and sent to jail for the maximum term of 5 to 15 years. Before the sentencing, Marla told reporters she felt humiliated by what she had to undergo. But Marla's poor treatment didn't end there. The judge humiliated her too, intimating she was a flirt and telling Marla in open court that he was incensed at her for talking to reporters, causing Marla to break down in tears. He later apologized after the mayor of New York City told the press he was outraged by the judge's behavior. 
And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, Marla Hansen's story. And of course, Beverly Willette is doing the reporting for Beginning Again series. One more segment. We'll find out what happened to Marla Hansen after justice was served and the healing, well, the healing begins. This is Our American Stories, and we're now coming to the conclusion of Marla Hansen's Beginning Again story, a real-life drama of a young model moving to the big city, meeting a degenerate landlord, getting attacked with razor blades for refusing his advances, and being forced to battle the media and the courts as she tried to physically and spiritually heal. Now let's hear more from Beverly Willette but how all of this trauma affected Marla. With the thugs now in jail, you might think this was finally the moment of Marla's vindication. She told me, however, that her treatment by the justice system was worse by a thousandfold than the razors that had slashed her face because the pounding she'd taken had caused deep, invisible wounds to her psyche. Looking back on the experience, she said it was the little moments of kindness from others that got her through. The kindness of her surgeon, of a philanthropist named Milton Petrie, known for helping disaster victims, who gave Marla a small trust fund to keep her going financially. But after the trials were over, Marla was left alone to fend for herself. People told her to get over it and move on with her life already. But it's not that simple for any victim, let alone a victim of a horrific crime like Marla's. Marla said she slept a lot at first. She was depressed. Everywhere she went, people knew her because her face continued to be plastered across the tabloids. People Magazine did an expose, and Marla became known nationally. A movie was made about her experience called The Marla Hansen Story. She received a lot of notoriety, she said, but it wasn't for her career, but as a victim. Her modeling career was over, and victim was a dirty word in our culture as it often still is today, because it makes people uncomfortable. Eventually, Marla got help from a therapist. And the first thing he had her work on was just getting out of bed in the morning. Later on, she went back to college and got a degree in filmmaking. 
through all this, Marla was still angry inside, though. So she began speaking out about what had happened to her. She appeared on Phil Donahue and Larry King Live and other national television shows. She educated therapists, police, the state and local justice departments, and hospitals. And she spoke before women's groups and shared the victim's point of view. She testified before various state legislatures on behalf of rape shield laws that would prohibit introduction of evidence relating to the past sexual conduct of victims. The intention of these laws, many of which were passed, was to safeguard victims from embarrassing questions about their private sex lives and to encourage them to report crimes. In 1994, Congress enacted the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, which extended rape shield protections to victims who sued for restitution in civil court proceedings. The Violence Against Women Act was included in the passage of this law and provided funds for investigation and prosecution of violent crimes against women and men, as well as provision for restitution by convicts and the rights for victims to seek civil redress. At the request of former Vice President Joe Biden, Marla testified in hearings before Congress on behalf of the act. She told the U.S. Senate that the stigma of victimization had harmed her more than the attack. Although the word victim implied innocence, she testified that in practice it implied guilt on the part of the victim. She told how she'd been called out for wearing a miniskirt how she'd been castigated for being in a bar at midnight, and even accused of staging the attack just to make money. Today, all states have some form of protection for crime victims, although the level of protection varies. 33 states have adopted amendments to their constitutions, guaranteeing rights to victims. New York, however, isn't one of them. Although New York has victims assistance programs, the website of the New York DA's office points out that criminal cases are prosecuted on behalf of the people and that, quote, victims, therefore, do not need their own attorney. As a crime victim, you are a witness in the prosecution of your case, end quote. In other words, perhaps a piece of evidence. Reform advocates like Steve Twist continue to argue we need an amendment to the U.S. Constitution so that the law guarantees crime victims the same level of protection as those in our society who break it. In 1982, President Ronald Reagan appointed a task force on victims of crime, which recommended that the Sixth Amendment to the Constitution guarantee a victim's right to be heard. A decade and a half later, President Clinton reaffirmed his support for a like amendment. To date, however, there's been no passage of a constitutional amendment granting victims the same equal protection as perpetrators. At some point during her advocacy work, Marla began having delayed reactions to her experiences and suffered from PTSD so she had to put her victim's advocacy work on hold. But eventually she mustered the courage to speak out again and help educate the public this time about PTSD. In 
I'm happy to say that Marla also produced a few films, got married, and had a daughter. And although she's no longer on the speaking circuit, in the long run, I think her empathy for others and advocacy work helped her more than anything else to begin again. Last year, I read about another woman in Manhattan whose face had been slashed by an attacker and how Marla spoke with this most recent victim, as she does with others. I asked her what advice she gives, and she told me that it's the same advice someone once gave her to help her through her own ordeal. I'll tell you, the, the thing that somebody told me that changed my life, it was a big light bulb, and no one had said that to me, was um, I kept looking for the old Marla. I kept trying to get myself back because I couldn't get back to the place I had been. And finally somebody said to me, why are you trying to do that? The old Marla is not there anymore. It's like the Twin Towers, the World Trade Center. It's in rubble on the ground. You don't exist anymore. The Marla you knew doesn't exist. But the beauty in that, and when you recognize that, like that person is gone forever, and you just have to mourn the loss. It's like a death. You mourn the loss of who you were. But the great news is you have the power to rebuild whatever you want and that you're in control of that because I never felt in control. And she handed me back control of my life with that and, you know, gave me the tools to start to rebuild. And that, that was the best advice anybody had given me. After talking with this amazing woman, however, I think that new, beautiful brave, inspiring Marla Hansen was always right there inside that old one. This is Our American Stories, and what a great, great story from Beverly Willette. Again, part of her Beginning Again series. And Marla Hansen's story, an important one, on the victim's rights front. I kept looking for the old Marla, And Marla's not here anymore, a friend told her. The Marla you know doesn't exist. And so she mourned the loss. And she moved forward and built the new Marla. And for victims, countless victims everywhere in this country, it's the same. I worked for a short time in a prosecutor's office. And it just horrified me how some of the prosecutors, and not all of them, there were some really decent and good prosecutors, but the political prosecutors, the ones looking to be governor, run for office, oh my goodness, the only thing they cared about was their record. They cared about clearing the case right, making sure it was buttoned up so it couldn't be on the, on the appellate front, a problem for them. And I saw that firsthand, and I can only imagine what that might be like in a larger system like the New York Police Department, NYPD, a great department, by the way, and great prosecutors. But you know what? The system, the system just, it isn't designed for the victim, as you heard. And so thanks to all the folks who are doing great victims' rights works. Thank you, Marla. And the next time I'm in New York, I'm going to look you up. We owe you a dinner. We owe you so much more for helping us and helping folks who are victims hear this story. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib. Check out all of our work all the work that we do on OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Marla Hansen's story. A remarkable, 
Remarkable Beginning Again story by Beverly Willett. American stories, and on this day in history, actor Brian Cranston was born in 1956. He was really nobody until he was somebody. He starred in a little hit show called Breaking Bad. Now everybody knows who he is. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, folks, Hillsdale can come to you with their terrific online courses. There are now 17 available for you to watch. Watch them with your family and friends. And now, off to Jesse and Brian Cranston's story. Brian Cranston is an American actor, screenwriter, director, producer, comedian, and voice actor, best known for portraying Walter White on the AMC crime drama series Breaking Bad, Hal on the Fox comedy series Malcolm in the Middle, and Dr. Tim Waitley in five episodes of the NBC comedy series Seinfeld. For Breaking Bad, he won the Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Lead Actor in a Drama Series four times, including three consecutive wins. After becoming one of the producers of Breaking Bad in 2011, he also won the award for Outstanding Drama Series twice. Cranston was born in Hollywood, California, the son of Audrey Peggy, a radio actress, and Joe Cranston, an actor and former amateur boxer. He graduated from Canoga Park High School, where he was a member of the school's chemistry club. He earned an associate degree in police science from Los Angeles Valley College in 1976. Here, Brian Cranston talks about the abrupt transition from the dad on Malcolm in the Middle to Walter White, a.k.a. Heisenberg, of Breaking Bad. I did a show called Malcolm in the Middle for seven years. When that was ending, I was offered uh, two television shows that um, were very similar. They said, well, he's a goofy, fun-loving dad. I just did that for seven years. And so, no thank you. And it wasn't a temptation for me because I've never been in it for, for fame and, and recognition or money. Uh, I, my juice is the, is the thrill and the empowerment that I get out of making people laugh or making people angry or, or scaring people or whatever the case may be. Um, that's where I, I get my excitement from it. So it was easy for me to turn that down. And then all of a sudden, coming across my plate is this odd show called Breaking Bad. After college, Cranston began his acting career in local and regional theaters, getting his start at the Granada Theater in the San Fernando Valley. He had previously performed as a youth, but his show business parents had mixed feelings about their son being involved in the profession, so he did not continue until years later. Cranston was ordained as a minister by the Universal Life Church and performed weddings for $150 a service to help with his income. 
Here, Brian Cranston boils down his success in the entertainment industry to talent, personal development, perseverance, and a whole lot of luck. I think that in order to have a successful career in this business, in the entertainment business, whether you're writing, directing, acting, or producing, or whatever the case may be, there are components that are necessary for that to come about. One is talent. You really do. You have to work hard and get educated and learn your craft and learn your business. Aside from that is uh, personal development, patience, and perseverance. Um, But there's also a component that is necessary that's kind of the wild card, and that's luck. You have to have a healthy dose of luck to become successful. That's just the way it is. Um, you You can't prepare for it, but you can be ready for it if it does come to you. Cranston started working regularly in the 1980s, mostly doing minor roles and advertisements. From 94 to 97, Cranston made a handful of appearances as Dr. Tim Waitley, Jerry Seinfeld's dentist on Seinfeld. But it was in 1998 when Cranston appeared on an episode of The X-Files written by Vince Gilligan where he made his big break. I was very lucky to get that role on X-Files simply because I was physically in the city where it was casting and I was out of the city for three weeks prior and I very could have easily not been in town and they just go on and someone else would have got the role and Who knows where I would have been. I certainly, odds are very high that I wouldn't have gotten Breaking Bad had I not met Vince Gilligan before. So it's one of those things where you you have to just do your work, do the best you can, and hope for the lucky breaks here and there. From 2008 to 2013, Cranston starred in the AMC series Breaking Bad, created by Vince Gilligan, in which he played Walter White, a high school chemistry teacher who is diagnosed with terminal lung cancer in Breaking Bad. Here, Cranston illustrates the importance of good writing by sharing the story of the time he read the first script for Breaking Bad. When I read the pilot script of Breaking Bad, it conjures up thoughts and ideas and inspiration within an actor that moves you along involuntarily. I wake up from a dream and go, oh, you know, it would be great is if he had this and he weighed this much and his hair was kind of, and I'm writing notes the whole time. And then I pitch Vince on these ideas and he's going, oh, that, that's, yeah, that's a great idea. And then, they, and so you start keying off each other and uh, pretty soon you're developing together the look of the character, the, the tone of the character, the pace. That's the joy of well-written material. It moves you immediately. And here's Brian Cranston about Walter White being the biggest role of his life, even though he's somewhat of an unsavory character. It's the role of my career, playing Walter White. And I will forever be grateful to Vince Gilligan for being my champion to get this role. There was some interest, um, concerns, I should say, about the goofy dad from Malcolm in the Middle transferring now and becoming Walter White, this, this mastermind chemist who, who creates this awful drug and puts it out in society. And who would want to watch this? It's crazy. And yet, if you see Breaking Bad, you realize that it's not about glorification of drug use or drug manufacturing. No one would, in their right mind would want to trade places with Walter White. He is a troubled, troubled, despicable man now and um, caught up in his own ego and hubris. And that's what happens. It's a story. It's a cautionary tale about poor decision-making. 
and what could happen. We've been hearing his thoughts on acting, directing, and how to be successful in Hollywood. When we come back, we'll hear a lot more from Brian Cranston on the difference between directing and acting, the importance of good writing, and how he manipulates actors on the set as a director. This is Our American Stories. More on the life of Brian Cranston, born on this day in history in 1956. This is Our American Stories, and we now return to the life and the career of actor-director Brian Cranston, who was born on this day in history in 1956. Here again is Jesse with a story. When we left off, Cranston told us about the difficult transition from playing the dad on Malcolm in the Middle to Walter White on AMC. And then Brian Cranston went on to talk about how the success of an actor is based on their audacity to display honest human emotions. The success of an actor is being willing to go into those dark places and, and, and display them publicly. Uh, we have to have that kind of courage and vulnerability to do that. In high school, all the way through school, I remember trying to stay the same as everyone else. I didn't want to stand out. Every, oh, we're wearing that and this is what everybody else is wearing. I kind of want to, I don't want to be isolated or ostracized, certainly. I don't want to be embarrassed or have someone point the finger at you. Oh, look at that guy. You know, it's like, oh no. What happens is that we think that if you're vulnerable and sensitive and open, that you'll be ridiculed. And, but as adults, when we mature, what we realize is that if you have the audacity to display those human honest emotions that the opposite is what happens people embrace someone who is in trouble someone who is vulnerable someone who is frightened we they they have a tendency to come forward and put their emotional arms around you so that once actors learn that it's like the finger pointing is only by the uneducated than the immature the, the ones who truly count, who ones who enjoy literature and, and well-crafted storytelling are anything but that. They're open and, and uh, welcoming to that type of personality. Here, Cranston explains how, through his character, Walter White, that anyone can be potentially dangerous because of the wide spectrum of emotions that we all possess. My job is to be honest when I depict Walter White and... And not to judge him, but to justify his actions so that I can honestly play him when I step into his shoes. Um, it is, it's difficult because the sensibility of Brian, Brian looking at that is, you know, abhorrent behavior. Right. And yet um, you, you realize that we as human beings are fully capable of a wide spectrum of emotions. I believe that if we chose the, the sweetest, meekest person, that person, given the right set of circumstances, can become dangerous. Any 
human being is potentially a dangerous person. If the right buttons are pushed, if the conditions of that person's life are in such despair, it, it, is, it is humanly possible. Here's a perfect example of that range of emotion that Cranston was talking about from this scene in Breaking Bad. Walter White is pulled over by a police officer for having a shattered windshield on his car. You know I pulled you over this morning? Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure I wasn't speeding. I've been using the cruise control, so I, I don't... No, sir, your windshield. License and registration, please. Uh, this, this was from Wayfair 515. Um, my house was in the debris field. And that's, that's what shattered my windshield, some piece of wreckage from the plane. I understand. You know of Flight 515, the, the plane crash? You're, you're wearing the ribbon? Yes, sir, I'm quite aware of Wayfair 515. I was one of the first responders on scene that day. Then what are you doing? Citing you, sir. What? What, you don't believe me? Sir, regardless of how that windshield was damaged, this car is unsafe to drive in this condition. Stay in the car, please. Wait, wait, just a minute. Just one minute. Sir, I ask you to stay in the vehicle. No, 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 I can get out of my own car. Sir, listen. No, 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 you listen to me. It's time for you to listen to me. Sir, what you need to do is take a deep breath. This is America, okay? I have rights. Do you understand that? At least have the common decency to hear me out. You need to step back right now. Did you even hear what I said? Sir, calm down. Now you're giving me a ticket? I told you that my house was in the debris field. You have the remotest inkling of what that means. Sir, calm down. Hellfire rained down on my Sir, house where my children sleep. Back. I need you to step back There were right body now. parts in my yard. Sir, this is your me? last warning. you got to be kidding me. you got about two seconds to stand down. Oh, or I'm oh, going to pepper spray. Oh, you're going to pepper spray. That. that is just perfect. Pepper spray the man who's expressing his opinion under the First Amendment. <laughs> 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 In describing the complex nature of a character like Walter White, Brian Cranston says that he believes we're all living in a gray area where it is possible to be perceived as both good and bad at the same time. I believe that we are all living in, in truthful, a gray area. It's not black and white like television shows of the past used to show us. It's all about the gray, shades of gray. I believe it's possible for a, a man, Walter White, to go out and to kill a, a rival of his, and yet wash his hands, go home, and gently and lovingly pick up his baby daughter and caress her and love her as a father. We are capable of that, of those wide swings as human beings. It's frightening in a way. Walter White had a characteristic that was very easy for a lot of people to relate to. Here, Cranston talks about placing that hook in viewers early on in Breaking Bad. When we put the hook in viewers early on in Breaking Bad, where you, we presented this man who was depressed from missed opportunities in his life, I think people can relate to that. Yeah, I missed, I missed the boat, or I, I didn't do what I th wanted to do when I was a kid, and now I'm doing some job that I'm not really passionate about. But you make the best of it. You put your, you know, your best foot forward and you move forward. And that's what Walter White was doing. Here, Cranston talks about the difference between directing and acting. He then goes on to describe the way he manages people on set. As an actor, and you're trained to do this, you're, you're self-centered, and you should be. What does my character want? What is my character, who's in my character's way? How does my character get these things, you know? 
what does my character feel about something? And uh, actors find themselves in trouble if they take that self-centered nature that is good and works well for their craft, if they take that out into their personal life. What do <laughs> I want? Who's in my way? How do I, you know? But uh, as a director, you have to take on the mantle of all of the concerns of a production, um, not the least of which is each individual actor's points of view, their temperaments, how they approach a, a, a character, what motivates them. So I might say to you as an actor, come on, Matt, let's go. Let's pick it up. You're a little lazy this morning. Let's go. And you might go, he's right. I got to go. You know, it might be that rah-rah coach point of view. With someone else, I might say, are you okay? How are you feeling today? You know, I think we can go further. I might be softer. I might be more calm. I always try to plant an idea that is suggestive so that instead of me telling the actor, I need you to be angrier, I want to get to the point of, this guy just came on to your wife, big time. How does that make you feel? Right. And let you go, that would really upset. Well, okay, bring it out. Let it go. You know, and it's like, whoa, whoa, okay. Um, and it's fun. It's fun to do that. Cranston goes on to explain that if the writing isn't any good, the production won't be any good either. I rely heavily on the writing. It's all about that. I know for a fact that if something is well written, whether it's a play or a television series or a movie, if something is well written, it has the potential to being and becoming a good production. If something is not well written, it has no chance to be a good production. No chance. You might have explosions and things and pretty girls and all these things going on, but, you know, uh, buzzes and whistles going off, but it's not going to be good. So, and what's good? Uh, it just has to please my sensibilities. It has to be in that high watermark. And it's hard to find consistent writing at that level where the characters are well-developed and the story is, is just terrific and compelling. Um, but if you find it, it's, it's, a, it's a joy. Brian Cranston, the guy who was born in Hollywood and climbed his way all the way to the top, Still can't believe that he gets to do this for a living. This is Our American Stories. I've been so fortunate. I'm, I've gotten more great luck than I ever thought I deserved. Um, and and, and I, I think, you know, in, in, in retrospect, the irony is, is that since I didn't have any money when I was a kid, there was no way of developing a sense of entitlement that I, I deserve anything. No, you have to work for it. You have to work for it. And the idea of becoming a working actor, making a living as an actor, a director, writer, even as I say it, I go, are you kidding me? I get to go play for a living. I get to go and, and create characters and goof around and, and use my imagination. I mean, that's just, that's just amazing. It is amazing, and that's Brian Cranston's story, born in 1956, entertaining us, well, for the rest of his life, we hope. This is Our American Stories, and as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their terrific online courses, all 17 of them.
This is Our American Stories, where we love great stories about music, sports, love, art, death, and business. And of course, American history. One of our favorite subjects is generosity and the generous things Americans do for each other and for the world. Which brings us to our sweet charity series with our partners, the Philanthropy Roundtable, the nation's leader in fostering excellence and generosity, protecting philanthropic freedom, and assisting givers in achieving their goals. And the host of the series is Carl Zinsmeister, their head of publications and a modern Renaissance man. Carl has authored 11 books, including two based on his time in Iraq, a storytelling cookbook, and even a graphic novel published by Marvel Comics. But of course, we know him best by his book, The Almanac of American Philanthropy. And here's a story from that great collection. Take it away, Carl. This is Carl Zinsmeister with Sweet Charity, a series of stories about how private giving solves public problems, adapted from the Philanthropy Roundtable's new Almanac of American Philanthropy. Immigration is back in the news. What exactly the American public and our politicians decide to do about it is yet to unfold. But one thing is clear. Charitable groups will do most of the real work of converting new arrivals to the U.S. into stable and productive citizens. It's always been that way in this country. I've just returned from Ellis Island, where more than a third of us had an ancestor arrive in America for the first time. Some of the most important work that was done there, as immigrants first stepped onto American soil, was carried out by charities. These immigrant aid groups helped in hundreds of ways, translating, providing immediate food and clothing, locating relatives who could take new arrivals under their wings, providing religious comfort, helping with paperwork and legal procedures, offering constructive advice and encouragement, giving safe temporary housing to unaccompanied women and children, lending money for required fees and railroad tickets to inland destinations, and finding jobs for men and women who stayed in the area. These charities included groups like the Traveler's Aid Society, the Italian Welfare League, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, the YMCA and YWCA, the Women's Home Missionary Society, the Irish Immigrant Society, the Salvation Army, the Lutheran Immigrant Society, and the Red Cross. They comforted, bolstered, and propelled towards success literally tens of millions of individuals, many of whom arrived from their countries of origin battered and beaten. Here is the scratchy, old, but very sweet recollection of one man who was welcomed by some of these volunteers as he came through Ellis Island. We were taken to a, what looked like a restaurant. There were uh, tables there and were given the best sandwiches I ever ate in my life. There were these Red Cross women, I think, well-dressed, old women, very sweet, and they gave us ham sandwiches. And they gave us very cool eating an orange and an apple. It was fantastic. I felt then that I was in the United States. The long-term message that newly arrived immigrants got from these charitable groups and from Americans generally was simple. Learn English, take night lessons to become educated and pick up job skills, and study civics so you can become a citizen. During the decades of peak immigration to the U.S., a so-called settlement house movement grew up, funded by donors and staffed by volunteers to help immigrants Americanize and prosper in their new land. 
Lots of practical advice was available at these centers. There were labor bureaus that matched people to jobs, libraries and language classes, gyms and clubs where children could play, instruction in sanitation and cooking and sewing and child care. There were banks where immigrants could safely save money and consultations with nurses and doctors. These charitable organizations also provided important mentoring and friendships, linking immigrants in need of advice, guidance, and kindness with middle-class volunteers who stepped up in large numbers to help assimilate the new arrivals. The mentors encouraged thrift, sobriety, industry, and family devotion. They brought their new friends to church and synagogue and introduced them to neighbors and employers. Individuals, businessmen, and successful earlier immigrants donated money as well as time. And charities found other creative ways to raise funds for this work. Lizzie Kander was a Milwaukee resident who discovered that the home conditions of Russian immigrant families in her city around the turn of the 20th century were what she called deplorable, threatening the moral and physical health of the people. Believing that women were the keys to household success and acculturation, Kander led a charitable initiative teaching cleanliness, child education, good nutrition, household skills, and economically useful trades to Russian women. She became deeply involved in running a settlement house that assimilated Jewish immigrants using funds donated by Milwaukee businessmen. When additional money was needed, Kander compiled a 174-page cookbook plus housekeeping guide so it could be sold as a fundraiser. But the board of directors wouldn't pay the $18 needed to print the book, so she financed production herself by selling ads. It became known as the Settlement Cookbook, with the very politically incorrect subtitle, The Way to a Man's Heart. If that sounds like too much of an amateur effort to do any significant good, get this. The Settlement Cookbook eventually sold 2 million copies, with new editions continuing to be churned out right up into the 1980s. And the revenue stream from this quirky, benevolent effort paid for the mainstreaming of immigrants in the upper Midwest for 75 years, in addition to many other philanthropic projects. Today, charities, particularly religious groups, continue to be the primary settlers of many immigrants to the U.S. For instance, refugees, most of whom were violently uprooted from their homes, tend to be especially stressed when they arrive in the U.S. and ill-prepared for a transition to a dramatically different environment. It's church groups who do almost all the heavy lifting these days to set refugees on their feet. Religious volunteers typically meet the displaced families at the airport, locate apartments for them, furnish the residences and fill their refrigerators and pantries, help locate jobs for the breadwinners, then follow up for many months with things like transportation to doctors or giving them driving lessons in used cars, offering family counseling and school assistance, and more. There are currently over 40 million foreign-born individuals in America, and fresh arrivals continue to stream in every year. Many of these individuals need guidance and an occasional boost. No matter what the government does to reduce or increase or modify our existing immigrant flow, the government will never be very good at the things that really matter in helping the migrants become settled and successful and happy in America. For that, we will always rely on philanthropic men and women, motivated by patriotism and religious faith and kindness, 
to help human beings who are a long way from familiar life to build new homes where they can be proud of themselves and make their neighbors proud as well. And there you go, another really good story from Carl Zinsmeister and the folks at the Philanthropy Roundtable. And you can catch all of what we do, by the way, on OurAmericanNetwork.org and catch our sweet charity series up on the Topics Bar. And again, that's Carl Zinsmeister. And the book, The Almanac of American Philanthropy, is simply outstanding. By the way, if you want to read a great book on American philanthropy, on charitable giving, there's a book by Arthur Brooks, and he is the president of the American Enterprise Institute. But many years ago, I think it's six, seven, maybe even eight years ago, he wrote a book called Who Really Cares? And it was about charitable giving throughout the United States and who gave the most and why it was they gave the most. And it's remarkable. Uh, who Really Cares by Arthur Brooks. We love digging into this space. American generosity is legion. Nobody gives like us in the entire world. Nobody makes as much as us. But boy, to that which is given, uh, much responsibility is is on top of those folks. And we exercise that charitable muscle. We exercise it a lot. And we love to tell those stories here in Our American Stories, our sweet charity series, as always, Brought to us by our partners at the Philanthropy Roundtable, the nation's leader in fostering excellence and generosity, protecting philanthropic freedom, and assisting givers in achieving their goals. Our American Stories. And HBO, not too long ago, put out a, a story about a young Pakistani girl whose family tried to murder her. But they didn't call it murder. They called it honor killing. The idea that if a young woman brings shame to the family, she deserves to die. But as we'll see, this practice has little to do with honor or justice. The name of the documentary, A Girl in the River. And again, It's HBO. The girl from the film is named Saba. She wanted to marry a young man unapproved by her family. So she went off and married him anyway. Her defiance led to her father and uncle teaching her a lesson. After I got married, I did not even spend one day with my husband. We only spoke for an hour or two. I had no alone time with him. I did not spend the night at my in-laws. My relatives came and got me. They said, return home to uphold our family's honor. Then Kesar can come and take you back honorably. After that, they put their hand on the Quran and promised they wouldn't harm me. They had a Toyota and they put me in the car. Because they had sworn on the Quran, I had no fear in my heart. Soon afterwards, my uncle stopped the car and pulled me out. Then he started slapping and beating me. I was conscious during all the beatings and hittings they subjected me to. I remember trembling with fear and begging, but they didn't listen to me. A pistol was pointed at my brain near my temple, and my uncle was clutching my neck. But I was slightly able to tilt my face, which led to the shot missing its target. 
Then they put me in a bag and threw me in the river so I would go right to the bottom, and no one would ever find out what happened. God did not want me to die. They tried to kill me, but I survived. Fate protected me from their bullets. In the future, fate might let me die by their hands. Only God knows these things. I slowly regained consciousness and got out of the river. Then I saw the light of a motorcycle in the distance, and I started following the light and slowly began walking towards it. I came to a gas station, and that's where I went for help. Saba's story is the basis of the Oscar-winning film directed by Sharmin Obaid Shinoy. It's amazing that Saba survived such a traumatic experience and the chance to share it. Well, that's even more amazing. Here's the director speaking about the importance of this film. I think it was very important to tell the honor killing story from the point of view of a survivor. Unfortunately, 99% of the cases, the women perish, not unable to tell their stories. Saba survived. Not only did she survive, she fought back. She got out of the river. She found a local fuel station. And the beauty of the story is that in this small town, the social services worked for Saba. The paramedics picked her up. She was taken to a local government hospital, which was run by a fantastic doctor who got his best surgeons to save her life. The local police in charge sent out investigators to find her father and her uncle and eventually did and jailed them. What would motivate a father to attack his own daughter? and then to feel entirely justified doing it? The director, Charmaine, spoke with the father, and here's what she found. The father and the uncle were defiant. They believed that what they did was right and that they would go back and do it again. Her father said to me, looking straight at me, that, yes, she's my daughter. I wanted to kill her. I provided her with food, shelter. How dare she defy me? How dare she go out without my permission? And uh, I... I'm ready to spend my entire life in jail because this is something that I've done for my honor, the honor of my family. She has shamed us. He said something like, I used to feed her three times a day. You know, you feed animals three times a day as well. He didn't look at her as another human being. At that point, I chose not to argue with him because I was extremely angry because these men get away with saying that this has something to do with religion when it absolutely has nothing to do with religion. You know, I mean, one of the most interesting things about the Muslim faith is that when a woman is getting married, a cleric has to ask her three times if she agrees to that marriage. If she hesitates even once, he is not to marry her off. So how can that religion condone honor killings? Indeed, this is not about religion. It was about hurt pride. Saba's response to what happened to her was to fight back. But this would prove to be an unfair fight. Well, Saba was very determined to fight the case. She wanted to make examples of her father and her uncle. There is a line in the film where she says that, you know, I want them to be shot in public so that no other man, no other father, no other uncle, no other brother does this to a woman in his family. And when I first met her, she had this fire in her. And she had a wonderful pro bono lawyer. They went to court. They began the proceedings. But the law did not support her. In Pakistan, in cases of honor killings, uh, the way it works, unfortunately, is that if a father kills his daughter, his wife can forgive him. If a brother kills a sister, the parents can forgive. In this case, because Saba survived, the community members, the neighborhood, they said that they would ostracize uh, the in-laws if she did not forgive. This film forced the conversation forward in Pakistan because it showed the government 
and public a real-life victim that had survived. There was now a face to this ongoing tragedy. They could no longer turn a blind eye. The film uh, has created quite a stir in Pakistan. The prime minister came out and said that he wanted to work on the issue of honor killings. And he has since then met with me. He has uh, spoken to members of his political party. They are going to be working to plug the loopholes in the law, making sure that there is no forgiveness in cases of honor killings. You know, I think that the prime minister was inspired to come out and speak about this issue, saying that there is no place for honor killings in Islam and that we must make that clear to everybody. If this law passes, honor killings will be a crime against the state, not against an individual, which means that the state has to prosecute and you cannot forgive. A lot of things can go wrong, but if in a town three or four people go to jail for it, the fifth person will think twice before shooting somebody in his family. In the beginning of her trial, Saba was not alone. Her pro bono lawyer worked very hard to help her seek justice. Honor killing under the Pakistani law should be treated as a murder, and the case should be prosecuted in the court of law as any murder case. But what happens is that in most cases, the near relatives who are allowed under law can forgive the accused. So for example, if father kills his daughter, the rest of the family members forgive him. The killers in honor killing cases are allowed to be acquitted. And that is also one reason why honor killings are rising because people get to know that if they kill their daughters, their sisters, they may still go scot-free. This is not just Sabah's cause, it's the society's cause. It's a question of public policy whether in such cases compromise or forgiveness should be allowed to happen or not. But seeking justice is a long-drawn process and women are at a great social and institutional disadvantage. Women in Pakistani society live as second-rate citizens, or perhaps even worse. Saba's lawyers went to great lengths to help her, even meeting with the elders of the community to try and reason with them. But social pressure plays a very powerful role there. And while Saba did want to seek justice, sometimes the corruption, well, it's just rooted too deeply. I can understand why she's inclined to reach a compromise. Our justice system is not strong enough to provide her security. Let's assume the accused are convicted and sentenced to five years of imprisonment. And they come out. And then they again try to kill her. Who is going to protect her? And one of the accused is her own father. And he's the only breadwinner of the family. So it makes worldly sense to forgive him. When the law allows for this kind of settlement, the courts in such instances have become mere uh, post offices. They just record the statement of the victim. This is something which strengthens male superiority. Then came the day where Saba had to choose whether or not to forgive her uncle and father. At first, I was sitting outside and was feeling sick. Then the judge greeted me and said, Come forward. Then he said, Child, do you wish to forgive them? Do we have your permission? I said yes. 
The Pakistani justice system may be broken, but Saba's will certainly isn't. If the elders hadn't pressured me, I would have never forgiven them. I said to myself, the longer they stay in prison, the better for everyone. I forgave them for society's sake. I listened to my family and forgave them. But in my heart, they are never forgiven. Let's end with some of Saba's final thoughts. Kesar and I will have a baby soon. I hope it is a girl so she can be brave. I hope she can do good things and be educated. I hope she can work if she wants to. She should do whatever her heart desires. God is the one who decides. But I would like to have a girl. On October 6, 2016, Pakistan passed a new law. From then on, perpetrators of so-called honor killings would be prosecuted by the state and they could no longer walk free if simply pardoned by the victim's family. Saba's bravery on display. This remarkable film, this remarkable story by HBO, A Girl in the River.